much, Phil, for, for reading for us. Um, as David said, we are doing something slightly differently um, these few weeks. So normally, uh, Sunday by Sunday, we'd take a, a single passage in the Bible and we'd root ourselves in there and think it through in detail. Uh, we're not doing that for these few weeks uh, because we're trying to, do, um, we're trying to take, take a, a topic and see what the Bible has to say about, um, about it right in, in a big sweep. Um, and um, as David says, we're thinking particularly about what, what the Bible has to say about itself or how Christians have understood um, the Bible. Um, very appropriate, this topic, for, for, for this Sunday, because uh, it's, um, it's the London Marathon. Right, so some of you got that, not all of you. Okay, so we'll see how we can do. We've got a lot to get through. Um, we'll see. It was a marathon, long sermon. Okay, okay. You've, you're with me now. Good. Um, we're, we're thinking in terms of uh, the Bible and liberty. Come at it like this. Lots of decisions we take, don't we? I mean, all sorts of decisions, uh, some trivial, some, some big. We take decisions about what sort of people to be. What sort of a friend shall I be? Uh, what sort of a husband or a wife if I'm married? Um, what sort of an employee? Uh, what kind of a citizen? And we're asking, what kind of person should I be when we ask that kind of question? Or we decide about priorities. We have to take decisions about that. What, what will I make most important in my life? Will I pursue wealth? Will I pursue happiness? Will I pursue knowledge? Will I pursue contentment? I will take a decision about what will matter to me most. We, we take those decisions in life. And, uh, of course, we arrive at different answers. Indeed, whole cultures arrive at different answers. Marriage in Saudi Arabia culturally looks very different to marriage in Western Supermare. Or uh, differences exist over time. Victorians were big on modesty. That's how they thought life should be lived. Look at our social media today, and it's pretty clear we don't. Cultures vary over time uh, in the way in which they're thinking. But how do we decide these things? How do you and I and everyone else make these decisions about the kind of persons we will be uh, and the priorities we will have in life? Where does the, where does the information come from that leads us to those decisions? Well, most people today would say, well, well, I decide. Because today, people want to be authentic. They want to be self-divining, true to themselves. So no one outside of me tells me how to live. I decide. And here's the rub. If, if I'm determined to, to, to be free to live life my way, where does my way come from? When we decide that this is the way to live and, and not that, what persuaded me that, that this was the right way rather than that way? Well, people come to those sort of decisions in very different kind of ways. Uh, people tend to identify three different sources for this kind of knowledge about the way that life should be lived. And they are reason and tradition and experience. It goes something like this. Some things just seem reasonable. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the golden rule. Seems reasonable, seems logical. 
I get that. Then there's tradition, the way things have always been done. So traditionally, the the groom's family sits over there and the bride's family sits over there. You don't have to do that, but traditionally you do. Traditionally, you meet someone, you stand up and you shake them by the hand. You could stay seated and blow them a kiss, but it's not traditional. We have traditions about the way that things have done. And we, we, we sort of acquire traditional ways of thinking about the way that life should be lived as well. And then finally, there's experience, which is slightly more intuitive than reason. It, it's, it's more kind of feelings-based. I've tried something, and it didn't kind of work. So I've decided from my experience of the way things go that this is the right way to do it. There you go, reason, tradition, experience. And of course they vary for each of us. The way that we work things out. What seems reasonable to me may not seem reasonable to you. What's traditional in your family isn't traditional in mine. And the experience that you've had is definitely different to my experience, and so on. But what about a Christian perspective on these things? How do Christians come at knowing the way that life should be lived? Well, of course, traditionally, Christians have seen the Bible, this book, as their authority. And not not simply one of many sources of authority, but as the authoritative Word of God Himself. But how bizarre is that, really, when you stop and think about it? I mean, if you're brand new to Christian things, you've you've popped into Christchurch this morning because you think, you know, I've never understood this Christian faith. I just think I'll go have a little look-see. What I've just said must seem bizarre to you, doesn't it? That this book, or this collection of 66 ancient books, is the authority, final, absolute authority for the way that you should live your life. What a strange idea. Our age rails against that. Mostly because we don't want anyone else telling us how to live. We want to be free. So let's talk freedom for a minute. Because what if freedom is rather more slippery than it first seems? What if freedom actually isn't so much the absence of constraints, which is how we typically understand it. What if freedom is to be found in submission to the right, the true constraints? Such that real freedom isn't about me choosing my way. No, but real freedom is me discovering the very meaning and purpose for which I was made. Um, let, Let me try and work with a trivial example. Suppose you get a new bike, and on your first outing, you notice that your bike is really heavy, and it's, it's a real effort to get it uphill. And you decide to do something about it. You decide that you're going to lighten the bike up. You're going to reduce its weight. Now, that seems reasonable. It's logical that a lighter bike will be better going uphill. Moreover, tradition suggests that that is true. Bike manufacturers have generally made their frames as light as they can. Carbon fiber forks and all the rest. And your experience confirms it. Over the years, you've been riding lots and lots of bikes, and it's been the lighter ones that have gone up hills fastest. So you feel entirely justified in your decision to remove those heavy and annoying lumps of metal that have been bolted onto the frame. 
until the manufacturer's instructions appear and you read them and you discover that this is actually an electric bike. And the lumps of metal that you were just about to remove are in fact the batteries. And with them, going uphill will be an awful lot faster. Now, clumsy illustration, but you get the point. Reason and experience and tradition aren't foolproof. Because there are some things, many things, about life that only the manufacturer, the creator, can tell us. Which is why we need his instructions, his words to us. Is that what we have? I mean, that's the million-dollar question. Is, it, is this book his authoritative word or not? Well, in, um, in a ridiculously short amount of time, we're going to look at three reasons uh, for believing uh, that this book, the Bible, is indeed the authoritative word of God. And, and then I'm going to tackle three common objections to the idea. So we're going to have to be quick. Okay, buckle up. Slide one, reason number one. Okay, the Bible is true because God is true. Um, you might hear people referring to the Bible as um, a source of authority alongside other sources of authority. Um, or saying that it's not so much that the Bible is the Word of God, but the Bible contains the Word of God. In other words, some bits are His Word, but other bits aren't, um, are not true. Um, and we need to work out which is which. You, you may hear that idea. It's become quite a fashionable way of thinking about the Bible. But do you see that if that were so, if the Bible just contains the Word of God rather than being absolutely the Word of God, then something else needs to tell you which bits are true and which bits aren't. Reason or tradition or experience have to be used to decide to discern this, this bit is true, but this bit's not. And then you've got another authority that is your final authority instead of the Bible. But for centuries, uh, in fact, until very, very recently, Christians have always accepted the Bible as the very words of God. And because God is true and does not lie, the same must be true of his speech. We have that phrase, don't we? We say, he or she is as good as his word. We link a person to their speech. Now, suppose at this point, um, on this Sunday morning, you are already getting pretty bored. Um, and you and the person next to you have, have already started sort of scribbling notes and passing them to one another to try and keep yourselves uh, going. And the person next to you scribbles down, um, this is so dull. Um, how about a drink in the Burley Arms after the service? And you look across and you nod. Now, the reason after the service that you will head to the Burley Arms rather than to the Grantor, um, you know, uh, uh, in Grantchester or wherever, or the Green Man in Grantchester. Where is the Grantor? Is the Grantor in Grantchester? Is there one there? No, it's not. Is it the, the Green Man in Grantchester? The reason you'll go to the Burley Arms rather than to the Green Man in Grantchester is because you trust the word of the person next to you. You rely on it. You consider them a reliable person, so you trust their word. If you didn't, you wouldn't go. Now, the same is true with God. If he speaks, and he does, 
then his word must be true, truer than any other word. And that word will never mislead us. Otherwise, it couldn't be his word. Second reason to believe in the authority of the Scriptures is because Jesus did. Now, we've seen in our reading from Mark chapter 7, um, you probably wondered if we were ever going to get to it. Well, we are going to touch on it briefly. Um, we see there in Mark chapter 7 something that we see over and over again in the Gospel accounts. We see Jesus settling debates and disagreements by an appeal to the Scriptures. So, so they asked Jesus about divorce. What did he do? He turned them to Genesis and said, haven't you read? But in the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, and then he goes on to construct his argument. They asked him about the resurrection from the dead, and he turned them to Exodus and said, aren't you in error because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God? And then he quoted from Exodus to them. On both occasions saying, look, definitive, knockdown, slam dunk, proof argument, I can quote Scripture to you on this. It's the way that Jesus operated, the way that he treated the Bible. Indeed, in Matthew chapter, in chapter 5, Jesus said that not even the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He's talking there about something as, as tiny as a sort of an accent in French, or the little poop that turns an O into a Q. Not even that much, he says is going to be taken out of God's Word. It's that absolute truth, through and through, every little bit. It's never going to get changed. That was the attitude that Jesus took. And that's how it is in Mark chapter 7. Uh, You've you got the context, haven't you? Um, here are some Pharisees being grumpy with Jesus' disciples because they haven't done the, the sort of the washy-washy bit before they sit down to eat. And they're feeling a bit grumpy about that. And so they have a go at Jesus. Look how he responds. Uh, verse 6, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it's written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their, teaches are, their teachings are merely human rules. And here's the punchline. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Catch that? You've let go of the commands of God that you find in the Bible and you've put in their place regulations that are just human ideas, human inventions. And then he gives a little example with this thing, Corban. Um, Moses said, Jesus, this is Jesus saying, Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother will be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what, they've been, what they have been used to help their, what might have been used to help their mother and father is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the Word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and you do many things like that. Nullify the Word of God. You have some tradition, some other piece of information that you are allowing to nullify the very commands of God Himself. Don't do it. Mustn't do it. Utterly wrong. That's the attitude that Jesus took to the Scriptures. That's why I had um, this, this diagram earlier on in the way that I did. That there, there's a priority structure here. It's not that reason or tradition or experience are valueless. Of course they're not. But they are 
they are less authoritative. They sit under the authority of the Bible. When there is a, when there is a disagreement between my reason or some tradition or what feels to be to me my experience and the things that the Bible is authoritatively saying, I have to go with the Bible. That's what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? Okay, third reason to accept the authority of the Bible. Because that's what the Bible claims for itself. Um, There could be so many um, examples of this, but but just look at a few references here. Um, uh, Here is um, from Deuteronomy. Do not add to what I command you, and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you, says Moses to the people. These are the commands of the Lord your God, and I'm giving them to you, says Moses. Um, And his words are recorded for us in Deuteronomy. Or or Psalm 119, from a little later in the psalm that we read earlier. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. That's what the Bible says about itself. Or, Or again and again in the prophets, they describe themselves as speaking the word of the Lord. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. God speaks to the prophet. The prophet writes it down. That's what the Bible understands itself to be. The Lord said, the Lord spoke, the word of the Lord came 3,808 times. I counted them all. No, I didn't, actually. That many times in the Old Testament, those phrases, because that's what the Bible understands itself to be. And the New Testament, the same. We've already seen uh, in Mark 7, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God. Or, or there's Paul saying, you know, what value is there in being a, being a Jewish person? Well, a lot of value. For the Jewish people have been entrusted with the very words of God, says Paul. The Bible seems pretty clear, doesn't it, about what it thinks itself is the words of God himself, his speech to us. So the little phrase, you know, David did it this, this morning. We, we do it Sunday by Sunday. You know, let, let, let's pray before we hear God's word to us. That's a, it's a little phrase. You see the weight of what is behind that. It's a huge thing to say that we're about to hear God speak to us because we're about to read from this book. It's a big claim. So... The Bible claims this for itself. That brings us to the first of our objections. Because if, 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 you're, if you're thinking about it, you will think, hang on, this is a circular argument. I mean, you're telling me that the, the Bible is the Word of God because the Bible says it's the Word of God. Well, you know, that's just circular, isn't it? That's, that's no use whatsoever. Um, but think for a moment. If there was something else to which I could appeal to demonstrate that this is an authoritative word, then that other thing would become the authority, wouldn't it? You, you, can't, you can't have something bigger than the Bible to which you're going to use to demonstrate that the Bible is authoritative with that other thing becoming your authority instead. So it, it kind of, there, there kind of needs to be a circularity to this. And actually, it's not, there's a process here that's not really quite circular. I, I, I've often over the years found, found this kind of helpful, that there is, there's a progression going on here. 
Um, I think of it as a sequence like this. If, if you're brand new to the Christian faith, uh, if you're trying to work out what you make of the Christian faith, then I would suggest to you that, that the process something like this would go well. Begin with the question, is the Bible historical? David was talking about that last week. There's a, there's a book by Peter Williams. Did you say it was on the bookstore? There's a book by Peter Williams on the bookstore all about that. Is the Bible historical? Just, just assess that as, as a sort of, kind of exploration uh, without making any assumptions about the Bible. But if you are persuaded the Bible is a, is a reliable historical document, which it is, then you can say, well, what does it say about Jesus? Um, and as you read what it says about Jesus, it may be that you become persuaded that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, and a Savior. And you decide to trust him. That is, you decide to become a Christian believer. And then you have a little look and say, well, what does this Jesus, who I've decided to trust, what does he have to say about the Bible? And you discover the things that we saw earlier, which is that he says that it's authoritative. And you say, well, if I'm calling Jesus my Lord, then I've got to take the same attitude towards the Bible as he takes. Otherwise, he's not really my Lord. So I accept the Bible's authority because Jesus does. I think there's, I think there's a logic to that, isn't there? Isn't there a sort of, it makes sense as a sequence. It doesn't feel to me as though you're doing something circular there. I mean, for sure, in the middle of that, uh, there is a step of faith, isn't there? For, for sure. But, but it's not a leap in the dark. Okay. Objection number two. Don't we just ignore lots of the Bible? I mean, isn't there just sort of weird stuff in here? Like not wearing clothes of, 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 of mixed fabrics? Or, you know, not eating shellfish? Or sacrificing animals on a regular basis? I mean, the Bible's got all of those instructions in there. So, in what sense? Are you, you're not being consistent now. You're saying, you know, that the Bible is authoritative and it's true. And then it's pretty clear that you, there's loads of stuff in it you don't do. You hypocritical Christian, you. So you're, not, you're not being true to what you said. How can the Bible be authoritative if you and I ignore lots of it? That's a common objection, isn't it? You, maybe you've heard it. Okay, the answer here is about progressive revelation. The Bible is a long book spanning over a lot of years, and it tells one long unfolding story that climaxes in Jesus Christ. Uh, and much of the Old Testament anticipates him, uh, prepares for him, and finds its fulfillment in him, which is why it doesn't apply anymore. Try, try, try this analogy for a minute. Suppose with, with, a, with a nice warmer days coming, you'd think to yourself, do you know, I think I'm going to learn to row. You've never, you've never done any rowing before, but you think, I'm, I'm going to learn to row this summer. Um, and so you, you join a boat club, and, uh, and they get you going. And the first thing they'll do is they'll put you in a tub, which is a sort of big, very stable thing uh, that won't capsize, no matter pretty much what, whatever you do. And, and they'll tell you to sit there, and they'll tell you to pull on the oar, and they'll say, no twisting of the oar, no leaning to and fro, just sit there and pull. And then a few months down the line, things will have changed. And now they'll be putting you in a skull, much wobblier. Uh, and they'll be telling you to feather 
your oar. And they'll be going on about body rock and all sorts of stuff like that. Now, you could be a pedant and you could say, hang on, you told me not to do any twiddling of my oar business. You told me just to sit still. Now you've changed your mind. You're confusing me. But of course you wouldn't do that because you'd understand that you're learning. And some things that applied back then don't apply now because there's a progression. And as you learn how to row, some things that you used to have to do, you don't do anymore. Does that analogy work for you? So some things that, that were earlier in the story of Revelation, the story of salvation, well, they don't apply anymore because we've moved to, to, to another stage in the process. And it's not just random which bits we choose and which bits we leave out, which bits we say we'll keep and which we won't. No, there's, there's reason and logic to it. If you, oh, this is not in my notes, I shouldn't do this. Uh, if you look at Mark chapter 7, and, and you look, if you've still got it open in front of you, if you have not sort of put it to one side and writing notes to one another. Um, if in, in Mark chapter 7, um, you'll see that Jesus goes on to talk about food and, and, and going in and coming out, um, and he says in verse 19, for it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and out of their body. In saying this, Jesus declared all food's clean. There it is. See, he's, he's showing the way in which, because of all of this food law business is fulfilled in Jesus, we can now move on from it. That's not the way now you get right with God, because Jesus has arrived. Okay, so, um, let's come then to the final and perhaps the biggest objection of all, for which we have far too little time, um, which is that the Bible is just so out of touch. It's an ancient book. It's culturally regressive. It's scientifically embarrassing. It's just primitive. Let's start with science, which works on the basis of testable hypotheses, doesn't it? Science takes a theory, like that gravity causes things to fall, and then it takes some apples and, and sort of drops them and says, there, see? Now, I, I know science does things slightly more complicatedly than that, but you, you get the idea. Um, crucial to science is that a hypothesis can be put aside if it's shown not to be true. And time and time again, scientific hypotheses prove not to be true. Take, take my old field, medicine. About 150 years ago, medicine was persuaded that the pituitary gland and the thyroid gland were insignificant bits of anatomy, just fastidial things of no significance whatsoever. It wasn't true. Both glands, pituitary and the thyroid, are in fact crucial for life. And so as science advanced, that became clear and the theory had to change. Now, do you see that it's the height of cultural arrogance to suppose that while the theories of our forebears were, were sort of, you know, in error and mistaken, we have now arrived at the point of absolute knowledge and none of our theories will ever be proved wrong. Bear in mind that the, the, the scientists who thought the pituitary and the thyroid gland were useless, they were as convinced of, of their theories as we are of ours today. 
which of our theories will get ditched? I don't know, but they will. It's going to happen. We, we, we find it hard to imagine it. But to, to, to persuade you, think wedding photos. Um, we, we have two sets of wedding photos at home. Um, one is of me and my wife, Beth. And they are, frankly, embarrassing. You know, wide ties, flares, perms, puffed sleeves, and that's just me. We just look so dated. It's, it's excruciating. How different the photos from our children's weddings from five or so years ago. You're dead trendy. But do you really imagine it will stay that way? Don't we know that at some point in the future, my children's children will be looking at their parents' photos and saying, Mom, Dad, what were you thinking? What are you wearing? We can't imagine that, but it will happen. So before we say, I can't believe this stuff in the Bible, it's ridiculous, it's so obviously wrong, it's, it's, it's just awful. Be careful. Remember that we are stuck in our cultural moment, and what seems obvious today won't seem obvious forever. Or we'll come at this one last final way. Shouldn't we expect that at some point or other, God will clash with our culture. He is above us. He knows and we don't. He is God and we're not. You have to expect that at some point, our culture is, must need correcting, must be in error. If, if we don't allow that, if we insist that God always agrees with us, if we massage out of his word anything that offends us, then do you see that we haven't really got a God anymore? We've got a, a made-up something that is really just an extension of ourselves. No, no, to, to, to have a God, you have to have a God that can disagree with you. You have to have a God that can correct you. I hope you get that in relation to the current debates in the Church of England. It's been argued, isn't it, that, that unless the church updates its thinking on stuff like marriage and sex, then the church is just going to get left behind. Church will become irrelevant unless it, unless it gets with, the, gets with the, the, the current message. It's just not true. The path to irrelevance is to be so molded by our culture that the church ends up with nothing left to say. Do you see, it's, it is a question of authority. Will we listen to our culture or will we listen to the word that God has spoken? Uh, let's wind back as we finish to, to the question of freedom. Is freedom the freedom to believe whatever I want? It's not freedom. That's actually just tying ourselves to whatever set of cultural values we have imbibed at this particular moment. Real freedom comes from knowing and obeying the will and desire that my Creator intends for me. And I find that by coming to His Word in the Bible and letting it rule. Here's the bottom line in relation to authority. Either we decide which bits of Scripture we do or don't like, 
or we let Scripture decide which bits of us it does or doesn't like. Either my heart judges the rightness of the Bible, or I let the Bible judge the rightness of my heart. Either I change Scripture, or I let Scripture change me. Can't be both. If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples, Jesus said. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Uh, Our Father God, we thank you that you have spoken truth.